Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us this month. I think you're really going to enjoy Dr. Dale's conversation with Chris Dorsey. Chris is known as the grandfather of outdoor TV. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Thank you, Gary. It's good to hear from you. And man, alive is it hot. I know you guys over in Central Texas are sweltering. Seen some uh, temperatures down your part of the world of 100 degrees plus and that humidity. I believe I'll take West Texas, even though we're currently sitting at a, about almost 50 days of above 100. And we're pretty much on trajectory to tie or who knows, maybe beat that record in 2011 where we had 100 days of 100 degree heat here in San Angelo. Deja vu 2011. I hope we don't get there. My best advice to y'all is to get you a cool beverage, uh, kick back in your favorite recliner or get in the cab of your pickup as you're traveling and uh, listen to this month's podcast. I've got a special guest. But before I introduce that individual, I want to talk to you about a little bit about a word that uh, I didn't use much. In fact, I'd never heard of it probably until I got out of college. And that term was vicariously. And basically it means living your living your activities uh, through somebody else's. Uh, in other words, you're basically reading about the adventures of so-and-so and trying to take on those characteristics of that particular odyssey. And so I'll, if I think back about my hunting exploits, which would have begun about mid-1960s, and again, I'm from a little small community there in southwestern Oklahoma, Hollis, Oklahoma, and I think back to those mid-60s when uh, really our hunting adventures consisted of Bob White's morning doves, some blue quail, uh, jackrabbits from time to time, and ever so often some prairie dogs. But that was about the extent of our big game. And if we wanted to learn more about hunting polar bears or pheasants or elephants or whatever the case might be, we had to do so vicariously through the exploits of people like... Um, Kurt Gowdy with the American Sportsman used to come on at 2.30 Sunday afternoon on ABC, as I recall. And then we'd also sometimes, I'd also try to catch some series that, uh, although they weren't hunting, they were wildlife-related, things like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom with old Marlon Perkins and Jacques Cousteau and the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau on National Geographic. And those helped whet my appetite, and really they helped uh, shape my future as a budding wildlife student and then uh, as about a seventh or eighth grader in junior high we didn't have much of a library at hollis high school but there were several books i'm gonna say seven or eight by an author by the name of jim kelgard k-j-e-e-l-g-a-a-r-d and uh, several titles that i read included books about dogs big red desert dog trailing trouble and then wildlife cameraman and others. And again, it gave me an opportunity as someone uh, from a small community before cable TV to live those pursuits and those odysseys vicariously. But who'd have thought, if we think about the print media, 
I mean, back in the day, it was outdoor life. It was sports field. It was field and stream. And, and I'd grab one of those whenever I could to read more about Jack O'Connor and the 270 rifle and how to sight in a rifle 25 yards and other things like that. But I wouldn't have ever thought about looking for a quail hunting article in Forbes magazine. And our guest this month produced such a article earlier this year. And I'll get to that here in just a second. But our guest today is Chris Dorsey. I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about his bona fides because he's had more accolades than Artie Murphy has. He has a wildlife degree from the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. And he is the uh, executive director of Dorsey Pictures, which has launched 45 different outdoor television series, including Sporting Classics with Chris Dorsey, which I think is the most viewed uh, outdoor magazine on the, on the outdoor channel at least he's published 12 books uh, several periodicals including sporting classics forbes the wall street journal newsweek he's the past editor in chief of sports field and ducks unlimited magazine he's been labeled the brand father of outdoor tv he's received several awards including the kurt gowdy memorial award and he lives up near denver colorado with his wife amy and his twins sons luke and nathan and we're going to learn more about that so welcome aboard chris and uh give us a little bit more about your elevator speech if i've left something out <laughs> you know that's uh i tell you what you must be my brother from another mother because i think we grew up the same way and and had a lot of the same influences when i when i think back to uh to the american sportsman kurt gowdy and just that showcase of the planet and the the wonderful sporting opportunities across the globe that he introduced so many people to. But uh, yeah, you know, I grew up in a, in a small town, just outside of a small town in Southern Wisconsin on a farm. And uh, we had, uh, we had wild pheasants back in the day. And uh, so I had a, I had a couple of bird dogs, English setters that were, were pretty darn good dogs because we had such easy access to wild pheasants. And so I used to field trial when I was a kid, I was in my gosh, I guess 12, 13 years old, something like that. I started field trialing these hunting dog stakes in Southern Wisconsin with, uh, with English setters. And, and they started winning pretty consistently as I got into my late teens, early twenties, ended up, um, you know, hunting deer and, and, uh, doing a little trapping in Southern Wisconsin and just the whole culture of, of the outdoors in, in Wisconsin was a, was, was sort of a, a, a cool way to, to grow up. I'm the youngest of nine kids. So I had, uh, you know, five older brothers that, that all loved, loved to hunt, loved to fish, loved to get outdoors. And so I came by it pretty honestly, and then ended up going to school at, at Stevens point, thought I was going to be a, a crick dick at, at one point, a game warden and, uh, ended up, you know, keeping a natural resources, uh, major up there, but I also got an English degree. And, and what do you do with that other than win bar bats and stuff? <laughs> do. You get into outdoor magazines and out of college, David Morris, the Bucks of Tecumani guy, was running uh, Game and Fish magazines out of Atlanta, and I went to work for him, and, and that sort of began a journey that uh, included a lot of magazine work, ended up uh, editing Sports of Field magazine. It was the, the youngest editor-in-chief in the 130, 35-year history of the magazine at age 32, and uh, I loved it. You know, I, mean, I used to write for Sports of the Field. I used to freelance for him uh, for Tom Paul when he was the editor in chief. And that, that magazine actually is the only outdoor magazine in history to ever win national magazine awards, 
which is uh, sort of the Academy Awards of, of all magazines, not just outdoor magazines. So it was, uh, it was, it was high stuff. It was a big deal to the day. And, and then uh, as I went to run Sports of Field magazine, I saw kind of the, the opportunity to create television. At that point, uh, we had created uh, TV shows when I was at Ducks Unlimited for, for DU. And uh, back in the day, it was on TNN, if you remember the old TNN before it became Spike, which then evolved into Paramount, which is where, of course, Yellowstone, the big hit's on right now. And and, uh, and then as I moved over to Sports of Field, I created a, a TV series around that magazine property. And and then I just kind of saw all these advertisers really diving into branded television, branded outdoor TV. And, and I already knew kind of most of the C-suite guys in the outdoor industry, so it was a Kind of an organic move for me just to create a, a television production company almost 25 years ago now. And uh, I think we've done 56 now series in the outdoor space and, and about uh, another 50, 60 series in, in mainstream cable over the years. We're in IMAX films now doing a, a natural history film with Michael Keaton and Ducks Unlimited and Audubon. And so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun run. Absolutely, Dale. Well, my goodness. I mean, you, you're adding things there. I've got a long list of things that I was going to mention. I'm going to kind of shorten those up just a little bit. But first, I want to reflect that indeed we must be brothers from different mothers because we both have setters. And so I knew I liked you for some reason. <laughs> and uh, that, that tells the story right there as far as I'm concerned. I'd love to I see love setters. setters. Do you still have setters today? You know, I don't have any setters today. And, and uh, you know, with, with uh, you know, work and, and school and all that kind of stuff, you know, they're, they're wonderful dogs. They're still a breed I'm going to get back into because I just love English setters, but, but, uh, I've got, uh, labs now and I've got, uh, field cockers and got a place down in South Carolina. So we use them for, uh, for upland bird hunting down there, quail. And, but I love, I love English setters. I'll get back into setters when I have a little bit more time and hopefully that's not too, uh, too much longer. Well, I, I wish you the best on that. I'm going to go through just a few other accomplishments that you've had because, my goodness, as I began to amass the various uh, work and uh, awards and so forth that you've received, I thought he's received more accolades than Audie Murphy. And you've hit on a couple of the highlight ones, but uh, you're sporting classics with Chris Dorsey. I think I read where that's the number one outdoors or the number one show on the Outdoor Channel. Am I correct there? Yeah, it's it's the biggest distributed outdoor show in the world that, that we can verify. And, and part of that is because we've got a great distribution partner in Europe by Red Arrow Studios, which is our parent company. And uh, and I sold the, the production company seven years ago to Germany's biggest media company. So we've got uh, distribution of, of this series across Europe and Asia, uh, parts of South America, et cetera. So it's got a very big global global footprint so that's uh you know that's that's the game we're in is distribution and creating good content and giving it plenty of uh, airtime. that's the key well that's that's quite an accomplishment on many fronts and in addition to the outdoor sporting kinds of shows uh, you've had quite a history with no pun intended the history channel the discovery channel national geographic home and garden tv travel channel ad libitum mm-hmm. uh so and I think maybe building Alaska and some of those, I don't know exactly what you call those types of uh, shows and not documentaries, uh, but, but anyway, yeah. how did, how did you venture off into those? Well, you know, it was sort of a kind of an organic move to get into mainstream cable television from the outdoor space. And, and it just, you know, we, we had always tried to bring 
kind of a high production value into the outdoor space. That was really, frankly, the big motivation to get into outdoor television was we saw a lot of stuff that, you know, we thought we could do better and, and had some ability to, to do that. And, uh, and really just wanted to, to create some outdoor shows that did justice and, and really honored the, the outdoor lifestyle, but also, you know, brought a conservation message and a conservation story along with it. And, and I was doing an interview the other day with, uh, with some other folks and, and I said, look, what we're doing today in outdoor television really isn't that much different at the end of the day than, than what happened 10,000 years ago when people were painting on cave walls. And, uh, you know, we're just doing it with a whole different medium, but it's, it's the same basic desire to tell a story and to hear a story that, that connects us as, as humans. And I think in the outdoor space, that's especially true. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's, you know, even when we do shows outside of outdoor networks like ESPN and TNN and Outdoor Channel, you know, we try and tell that conservation story. We did a series for, for Discovery Channel several years ago called Kodiak. And it was all about the bear hunting on Kodiak and the bear hunters on Kodiak. And, and really the bottom line message was Kodiak doesn't have the highest densities of bears in the world in spite of hunting. It has that because of hunting. And, and so we were able to take a, a series that's on a network that's in 170 countries on this planet and tell a story that was really positive about hunting and conservation and, uh, and yet was very entertaining, very, very dramatic. And the landscape of Kodiak, as you know, is, is a pretty stunning Jurassic kind of landscape with the giant Sitka spruce and these, you know, 1500 pound brown bears, you know, walking around like, like leftover dinosaurs. It's, it's just a great environment. So we've always tried to do that in all of our productions, whether it's, you know, capture cowboys on, on history channel, which is about, the as capturing wild animals and moving from one location to the next location, which is a key part of, of a lot of the conservation efforts across not just North America, but the world. And, uh, and building Alaska, we did 14 seasons of building Alaska on, on uh, DIY and discovery. And, and even in that series, you know, we were talking about, you know, subsistence hunting and how important that was as somebody's building a hunting cabin in the middle of nowhere and, all the, the trials and tribulations that they have to go through to, to move men and materials across frozen, frozen lakes in winter to try and get the materials there so that they could build in spring, you know, helicopters, boats, you know, snow machines, what, whatever it was, it was, it was always this big journey and adventure simply to build in the first place. And the genesis of that series, one of the, one of the most popular series on, on discovery was, was me bear hunting on Kodiak Island with uh, with a guy by the name of Bob May, who was a longtime guide up there. And he said, yeah, after we got done with the bear hunt, he said, you know, I'm going to build a, a new cabin right there. I said, well, Bob, there is a cabin right there. And this this guy talks like Tom Bodette, you know, I'll leave the light on for you kind of, <laughs> you know, Demeter. And, and I said, well, Bob, there is a, a cabin right there. He goes, yep, but there won't be for long. So he, he proceeds to take this giant cable, ties it around the cabin, you know, and walks it down to his trawler and, and uh, <laughs> hooks it up to his, his fishing trawler and literally just jerks that cabin off the foundation down to the beach, lights it up, burns it up right there. And of course, we've got a camera guy there. So I'm just rolling on this going, oh, my God, this is great stuff. <laughs> and uh, so I make some notes. I, I put together a short, short clip of it, sent it back to, uh, to HGTV and DIY and, and called up the executive. I said, look, something's going to hit your inbox. 
as soon as you watch it, you know, as soon as you get it, watch it, call me right away. <laughs> and he called back and said, holy shit, that's pretty good stuff. And uh, so anyway, that launched 14 seasons of, of building Alaska from that spawn, building off the grid on Discovery and, and a bunch of other sort of remote building kind of shows. But that was really the genesis kind of the whole genre right there. And it was a bear hunting guide. And, and that's kind of the fun of the gig. You know, you just, everybody you meet has a story, has a, a lifestyle. When you hang out in places like Alaska and Texas, et cetera, you, you meet some characters. Well, I hope while you were down there at the Snipes Ranch, they introduced you to Barefoot Bob. If not, you'll have to come back because he's the closest thing Texas has to Crocodile Dundee. Well, we, we we talked about him extensively, as a matter of fact. I didn't meet him, but I sure do want to meet him. And, uh, yeah, he, his name came up and figured prominently for quite a long time. Chris, you've been called the grandfather of outdoor TV. Explain that to our listeners. You know, I had a couple of guys tell me, uh, they said, look, you know, I, I think you're the, you're the grandfather. And, and really what that means is, is I've been doing this for a long time and we brought a lot of the brands in the outdoor space into branded TV, you know, whether it's federal Winchester, Bass Pro, uh, you name it, there's just all sorts of different outdoor companies and, and others, you know, automotive companies, you know, ATV companies, et cetera. And, and, and really the whole idea was to say, don't just create a TV show and then go find sponsors. For me, it was, was basically the elevator pitch to them was simply, let's agree that television is the most compelling medium ever created to move somebody to the point of purchase. And, and that took about three seconds to get somebody to agree to if they knew what they were talking about. And, uh, and then from there, it was simply, rather than just creating a show, let's create a show around your brand around your, your personalities and your, your product, your ethos. And, uh, and so that became really the genesis of the company was, was to say, let's get inside of Winchester. Let's tell the story of Winchester. Let's do that with, you know, with Bass Pro. Let's do that with some of these other manufacturers out there and, uh, and really help them tell their, their brand story, connect with, in personal ways with, with the people in their brand and, and, uh, you know, showcase the things that were important to them, in many cases, conservation efforts and initiatives. So that that's really how we built the company. And, and it, you know, it, whether it was Beretta, you know, we, we, we were very early engaged with Beretta and Benelli and that whole group of companies. And I think they were they were really some of the early companies involved in that whole branded TV movement. But that was that was a big part. Of it. And then I worked with companies and, and networks like ESPN and TNN to help them kind of refine the model that would, would allow these brands to showcase their, their, their lifestyle, their products, their people on television. And, and uh, so that's, that's kind of the genesis of that whole deal. You know, I was just early in the game and we've done a, done a lot of it over the years. Well, you've been very successful with it. In addition to the electronic media, I know you've also published uh, 12 books, uh, one of which was the world's greatest wing shooting destinations. And, I don't want to delve off into that right now, but if we have time towards the end, I want you to share what some of those great wing shooting destinations were uh, that you wrote about. And yeah, then, we uh, could talk about that for a long time. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm saving it to the end, so we can, we've got yeah, sure. time to quit. But, um, well, Chris, I know your works are highly recognized by your peers. Uh, you've been uh, the recipient of the Kirk Gowdy Memorial Award, the Ray Scott Trailblazer Award, 
And I know you were also recently inducted into the Conservation Legacy Hall of Fame. So congratulations on all those. And again, uh, well-deserved. Uh, this is from one uh, wordsmith and, and wildlifer to another. You've done a great job with that. And then I think you have some support at home in the way of a wife and two sons. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, my wife, uh, Amy, has been in our business uh, from the very beginning, almost from the very beginning. And uh, she's a huge part of the business and, and a very, very savvy uh, business person. And uh, when it comes to the lifestyle, we actually took our honeymoon to Southern Africa. We were in South Africa and Zimbabwe bird hunting. And and uh, so I knew I, I found the right woman when, when she was game to do that on a honeymoon. Uh, and, you know, I've got two twin boys that are uh, 17 years old, and they're a couple of velociraptors that are absolutely top of the food chainers. And, and you know, what, what I really love about my two kids, you know, and the fact that they have such a keen passion for the outdoors is the fact that they understand their role as, as sportsmen and, and our role collectively as, as hunters and, and advocates for conservation. And, and they're, they're articulate. They read about it. They understand it. They can debate about it, and and as we always say, you know your your arguments only as good as your facts. And if you're going to engage, you better know what you're talking about. And and so they've been they've been pretty savvy about understanding and and uh, and discussing the the role of hunting and conservation. And and look, you know, in in this day and age, there isn't a kid their age in America who doesn't get challenged by their peer group relative to hunting. And uh, so. You know, it's it's important that they can engage, and it's important that they you know they can do it in a way that's thoughtful and and meaningful, and and uh, hopefully can can influence some people down the road. And and look, they're on our our TV shows a lot, and they've done a great job on on TV. They understand the power of that medium. They do the social media thing as well, and and uh, so it's been fun just to you know to see them mature as hunter gatherers, if you will, but also you know, is advocates for the lifestyle and conservation. And that's, that's, you know, for me as a, as a father, that's pretty heartening. Chris, a number of years ago, uh, 1997, as I recall, I sat down and wrote what I call Susie's 10 point plan for success. Susie was my bird dog at the time. She had her, she had her muzzle there in my lap while I was at the computer writing this uh, lessons I've learned from bird dogs kind of thing. And point number 10 reads, be thankful if your vocation and avocation in life are one and the same. And that's a trait that I share with my bird dogs. And Chris, after learning more about you, I sense that you and I uh, have similar traits in our DNA as well. So again, we're excited about having you on here. Um, and you spoke that you were did a wildlife degree, but you said you had a minor in English. Is that correct? Well, actually, a, a minor in uh, natural resource management and a, and a degree in English. And uh, and the minor at Stevens Point in natural resource management is, I would say, pretty equivalent to a, a full-on degree at, at most universities. Stevens Point, as you know, is the largest natural resources school in the country. And I think Colorado State is number two. And uh, so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of biologists get churned out of that program. And got a lot of fond memories up there. You know, I used to do a lot of grouse hunting up in, in that part of the world and, and it's good grouse hunting, a lot of public land, not far from the university. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's fun stuff. And you know, what I really admired about you, Dale was, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my life, about a decade of my life working for Ducks Unlimited and a great outfit, as you know, and, and I worked very closely running their marketing communications area with the biologists 
really trying to help them be better communicators. You know, they're they're really sound science people, very, very tuned up science people. But as you know, so much of this gig is really about communicating and sharing the importance of, of conservation with people and and being able to com- communicate in a way that's compelling and interesting and, and emotional is is really key. And I thought, you know, as we filmed the show down there with, with you and Brad, both of you guys are are really switched on as as communicators, and that's such a huge, huge advantage anymore. Um, I, I think if we don't have biologists, if we don't have managers of of wildlife and of resources, natural resources, who could really communicate effectively, we're go- we're gonna we're gonna struggle. And I think you've seen what's going on relative to, and, and maybe you're not dealing with this as much in Texas as we are here in Colorado. But I could tell you in Colorado, we got a real effort on our hands to try and kind of turn back this ballot box biology that's happening. And uh, and right now, our state agency is is effectively being neutralized by the ballot box in these referendums that are coming in to introduce wolves and, and things like this. And really taking the management of our wildlife resources out of the hands of the professionals and putting it in the hands of, of a general population that doesn't have a clue. And and so you know when I see guys like like you and Brad who really are sharp at communicating and understand how to communicate, I just you know we need more people like you. I tell you that it's uh, if 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 wildlife management is going to succeed down the road in this North American model that we keep celebrating and talking about is going to be going to be working down the road, then we're going to need more folks like you who can talk to the the general population so that they can then amplify and echo what they're hearing from the from the experts like you and and I see what's just happened recently in this you know this Georgia representative who's trying to to do away with Pittman Robertson funding I mean what the hell I, I don't I did you see that one coming no, I mean I'm, I you know I crazy. Heard about that one yet yeah oh yeah now there's you know, you, you take the most, and oh, by the way, it's a self-imposed tax, right? Bittman Robertson, sportsmen came together to say, look, we want to be taxed and we want that funding to go to, to wildlife management. And this goes back to the, on the heels of the Dust Bowl, et cetera. You know, that's really the genesis of, of American conservation in a significant way and a funding mechanism that, that made it real. And uh, so we've got a guy in, in uh, Georgia who's just introduced legislation. And of course, the NGOs and the state agencies are up in arms, as they should be, uh, about the fact that uh, this guy wants to repeal the Pittman-Robertson Act and, and do away with that funding mechanism. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of crazy stuff. It's like, what in the world would possess, you know, this guy to do that? I have no idea. I mean, it's a nobody's opposed to it that I'm aware of. Everybody's in support of it. The only debate surrounding Pittman-Robertson and Dingle Johnson on the fishing side is you know, can we spend that money more effectively? Could it be spent more wisely to have better, better effect? But, but to simply introduce something that would do away with it is, is crazyville. But that again, speaks to the fact that we've got to have people like you and Brad and the members of, of your coalition down there engaged and involved in, in advocating for, for hunting and conservation as one and the same. Well, I appreciate those comments and compliments. And I want to ask you a little bit later more about sportsman-led uh, initiatives and so forth and the effectiveness of those. Uh, I'd like to step back a little bit. I want to step back to when you're 12, 13 years old. What piqued your interest in hunting? 
You know, I, my father was not a hunter, which is kind of interesting. I have a, an older brother who really got me into it, and he had a friend whose father sort of mentored him and took him along. And and this this brother of mine is, gosh, eleven years older than I am. So there's a bit of an age gap there, and and uh, so he really was kind of my father figure when it came to the outdoors and and just got me involved in it. And I loved it from the very beginning. I mean, you know, it, it awakened the, the, the DNA in my, my genes that, you know, I, I knew this was a, a calling for me and it really truly wasn't so much what I did as, as it was who I was. And, uh, and I, I just can't even imagine a life without, you know, hunting in the outdoors at all. And, and I, I look at people who don't, you know, enjoy the outdoors or aren't involved in hunting and fishing and the lifestyle like that. I just go, what do you do? I mean, what's your, what, what drives you? You know, because it's, to me, it's almost a foreign concept to think of somebody who doesn't have that, but right from the very beginning, I loved it. And, and look, when I grew up as the youngest of, of the tribe, you know, I was, I was effectively the bird dog. I mean, I was, I was just happy to go along. I'd go into any cover. I would flush rabbits. I would flush pheasants didn't matter to me. I was just delighted to be out there and to, and to be a part of the, the whole event. And, and, uh, so it was good stuff. Simple pleasures. That's, uh, I, I again, yeah. can, can relate to you very well on that. Let's talk about your journalism. Again, you, you had some, you had an English major, but did you have training in journalism or did you kind of barnstorm your, your efforts there or, or what? You know, I started writing actually for uh, for state magazines and newspapers in Wisconsin when I was at uh, at Stevens Point. Um, I started doing a column when I was a sophomore, I think, for the uh, Wisconsin State Journal, which is the second largest newspaper in the state of Wisconsin out of Madison. I did some writing for the Milwaukee Journal as well, and then started selling stuff to the various state outdoor magazines and the Field and Stream. I think Glenn Sapier bought but the first piece I'd ever done at Field and Stream. And, you know, and, and as you were talking about some of your early influences, you know, I was thinking I used to go and I was in a little town called the forest just outside of Madison. And I think we were 1900 people, something like that in the community, a little, little farm town, not too far from Madison, but, but they always had Field and Stream outdoor life and sports, a field magazine in the, in the school library, you know, so I would, I would just gravitate. I'd go grab those magazines. And when I had time, I would just read them from cover to cover. I mean, literally cover to cover and, and got to know guys like Gene Hill and, and, uh, you know, some of these other writers that, you know, came through Jack O'Connor and some of these other guys. And, and so, you know, that really was kind of a baptism into the culture. And, and, uh, then you start reading books by these guys and, then you start broadening your horizons and start reading books about Africa, whether it's Ruark or Hemingway or, or whatever. But, but I think it's really important just to immerse yourself inside the culture itself of the sport and understand kind of the shoulders you're, you're standing on. And, and so I've always loved the written word. I've always, I've always been attracted to storytelling and, and the ability to, to communicate a good story, whether it's, you know, writing or if it's, it's television, radio, whatever. So I just, uh, I, I like that. I like that role of, of being able to communicate and share an experience and, and celebrate that and hopefully encourage others to, to do the same. I was really blown away by Chris's ability to weave that tale, to paint those vivid mental images that a good storyteller and a good journalist can do. And I want to share some of the excerpts from that article in Forbes magazine uh, which I hope will serve as bait to get you to uh, click click on those links and uh, learn more about that 
article and then soon be coming out the uh, TV episode on um, Sporting Classics with Chris Dorsey, which will air in August, uh, probably right before this podcast is aired. So uh, starting with the first one, let me give you a little bit of context. He's hunting with an older gentleman in Georgia. This is some years ago, and this older gentleman had hunted all around the world for all species of game. But on that hunt, the older fellow tells Chris, quote, you can hunt all over the world for all manner of game, but in the end, you'll always come home to bobwhite quail over pointing dogs. His inference was that when a man's horizon nears, hunting bobwhite quail blurs the line between heaven and earth. End quote. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, I, at the time, and this is many years ago when this fellow, he was a very successful business guy, owned a nice plantation down in South Georgia. He had truly hunted all over the world. I, I felt like I was looking at myself <laughs> to some degree 30 years later. And uh, he made that comment, and I just sort of dismissed it at the time. But but as I get older and, and as I as I travel more and and see the world and, and experience the outdoors, I think he's probably onto something. I think he's probably right. We have a guy down here, Chris, in Texas. His name is Bubba Wood. Bubba's well-known throughout the quail community here in Texas and was the recipient of the T. Boone Pickens Lifetime Sportsman Award year before last. And in an article written by his friend and mine, Ray Sasser, Ray was the outdoor editor for many years for Dallas Morning News. And in an article that he wrote on quail and quail hunting, he quoted Bubba with this, and I, and I quote, and I quote, the best argument for the intelligent design of creation deals with three irrefutable facts. Number one, there's a bobwhite quail. Number two, there's a dog that points bobwhite quail. And number three, there's a 20-gauge shotgun. It's too perfect to be random, end quote. Yeah, I mean, isn't that true? I mean, don't you feel like, uh, you know, I, I when when somebody doesn't understand it, doesn't doesn't uh, has never experienced that moment in time that moment in the outdoors you just feel like you've got a secret that that uh, you want to share but but that they they've never known they will uh, they will not probably ever know and and i just feel like they're missing something big and and you want to you want to be able to share that with them and just let them understand how how magical that that moment in time is 10 4. Uh, the last quote that I'll, I'll share is To be sure, if quail hunting is done well, it trends closer to narcotic than mere pastime. <laughs> yeah. How many people have you known that have, <laughs> have burned up fortunes, you know, pursuing uh, Bob White quail and, and great shotguns, all the, all the accoutrement that comes with the lifestyle itself? And, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, to do it well, you're going to be obsessive. Well, again, all of that speaks to your ability to be a, a writer, to create those, to paint those vivid mental images that as a reader lead us into that uh, landscape with you. I think it was Gene Hill that said that quail hunting is like walking into and out of a, a um, favorite painting time and time again during the day, something to that effect. Uh, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's yeah. a quote from Steve Smith with Pointing Dog Journal. The only thing that rivals his skill, this being your the only thing that rivals his skill with a shotgun is his way of spinning an unforgettable tale. And again, I, I just, I'm going to encourage readers if, if they're not already following you to uh, for sure read that article that you did for us at, 
at the Rolling Plains Grove Research Foundation because I was so impressed with that, not, not only because of your ability to paint that vivid mental image. We did that on like a Tuesday, and I think it was like Friday. We had this article done. I was just shocked. Uh, I mean, it had well, been, uh, been two weeks or two months before I got that written. You, you knocked it out quickly. You know, it's uh, I forget easily, so I have to write things down. <laughs> Look, it was it was a lot of fun. I really, you know, wild quail is such a premium to me. And it's uh, as I told Rick Snipes at, at dinner at his place uh, one of the nights there, I just said, you know, there aren't many things in this game anymore that make me nervous, you know, whether it's hunting dangerous game or anything else. But I said, honestly, Rick, I get nervous when I'm walking in over a point that I know it's a, a covey of wild bobwhite quail. I'm just I'm just nervous. I mean, it's such a premium experience. And I, I just want to maximize the, the rare opportunities that I get to actually introduce myself to wild bobwhite quail. It's pretty damn rare in my life these days. And, uh, and when I get that chance, I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like the first pitch at Yankee stadium, you know, as a rookie and, uh, and, and tell me there isn't magic in that, you know, and, and, uh, and Rick smiled and he just said, cause I, I wasn't shooting particularly well the first day. I was like, damn, you know, these things are even faster than I've remembered. And, uh, he said, you know, you don't go up there trying to shoot quail, go up there to kill a quail. And that's the difference in focusing on your shooting. And, and by God, he was right. I thought, you know, there's such a nuance there, but it was, it was like the difference between lightning and the lightning bug, you know, it was really the deal, you know, just go up there trying to kill a quail, focus all those predatory genes in that instant. And that's what you got to do on a, on a bird that flies like lightning. And it was just a magical time. I just, I love that whole experience and what a guy Rick is and what a property that is. And all you guys were, were so much fun to be around and you're a walking, a walking quote every time you were saying stuff. I just kept thinking, where the hell were you in my early days when I was working with all sorts of biologists trying to get them to communicate? And here's this guy who, uh, you know, you're, you're fantastic at it. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I work hard at my communication skills, especially as a young professional. I attended Toastmasters for a number of years, yeah. and I'm very high on Toastmasters, recommended to all my graduate students and anybody that's listening. If you've never been to a Toastmasters club and your job involves communication, that's all of us, uh, try the Toastmasters yeah. club and see if you don't like it. One last quote here that I thought was really good. This was by Matthew Connolly, who was formerly with uh, former editor, I think, of Ducks Unlimited magazine. Chris Dorsey is as nimble and accurate with words as he is with a shotgun. I have every confidence he could make a treatise on the Dewey Decimal Classification System an enjoyable must-read on the strength alone of his superb wordsmithing. That's quite a compliment. Well, Matt, uh, Matt's quite a guy. Matt was actually the, uh, the the head of DU for about, gosh, I want to say 15 years, and uh, and really was one of the architects of the whole public-private conservation initi initiative effort out of Washington, and and uh, but a, a keen uh, keen sportsman himself, and an old friend and mentor of mine. So yeah, it's fun stuff. When I went to Oklahoma State University in, in my first wildlife ecology class, I was introduced to another Wisconsin person, Badger, I guess, uh, by the name of Aldo Lippo. And I, I think you and all the Lippo must share some common DNA too, being from that part of the world. And again, your knowledge of the subject, but again, your ability to tell that tale so well and so eloquently. So 
I'm giving you well, high praise mean, and recommending or referencing. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you you talk about the godfather of the whole deal, right? I mean, he's. I, I think uh, a San County Almanac was required reading for about 15 classes at Stevens Point. It, it's, uh, you know, you don't get through uh, that, that program up there without having read that, that book. And what a fantastic book. And, uh, and, and you've got a lot of those qualities in, in, in relating great conservation, great environmental wildlife stories in, in ways that even if people don't organically have an interest in that, they're going to be interested. They're going to pay attention. You're going to break through. And, uh, and that's really, you know, that's the game at the end of the day. But yeah, Aldo Leopold, what a guy, huh? The father of wildlife management. Yeah. And again, a Sand County Almanac ought to be required reading. It is required re reading for all of our Quailmaster students. Uh, a lot of times when I'm at the research ranch and there's four or five students or technicians there, we'll have a breakfast discussion over Thinking Like a Mountain or Good Oak or one of the essays right. there. If you right. haven't read right. it, folks, it's going to cost you about seven bucks on Amazon. Get a copy of yeah. it. You'll be hooked after you read a couple of chapters. Uh, Amen. Let's, talk, let's talk, Chris. Uh, again, the, I guess the, it's my understanding that the article you wrote on us in Forbes, there is going to be a TV sequel to that. And that'll be airing. We're taping this podcast in uh, mid-July, and I think it's going to air next month in August. So I would just encourage uh, it'll still be living somewhere on the uh, outdoor channel. I'm sure after we um, we'll, we'll miss that as far as an August 20th deadline for the podcast, but to check that out on sporting classics TV, I look forward to seeing that. I want to yeah, no, I, I, I just watched the, uh, the rough cut of the, the show. It's fantastic. And, and you guys were all terrific in it. It's just so much fun to, to go to places like that, to Snipes ranch, to your research center down there. And, and just see the landscape, get a story, understand what's going on, and and uh, mix that in with some great quail hunting, and and celebrate the the whole passion and pageantry of Bob White quail hunting. But it's a great show, and it'll air uh, third quarter five times in third quarter, five times again in in fourth quarter on Outdoor Channel, and the prime airing is uh, twelve thirty Eastern time on on Saturdays, and uh, and then it airs four other times during the week as well. So, yeah, check it out. Well, we look forward to seeing that, and if it if it uh, if it meets the standard that you set with your uh, written article, it'll be fantastic indeed. And again, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of outdoor writers and uh, videographers and so forth over the years. Uh, but again, I really enjoyed working with a true professional yourself, and did a great job of that. I want to take you back after we finish some times. Well, one thing I got to mention uh, again, I have to paraphrase it, but you said that Rick and Lana Snipes were the aunt and uncle we all wish we had. And isn't that true? Yeah, yeah. Just just wonderful folks. I mean you you come in and they just they just wrap you up and embrace you and, and they've got a story to tell, a great story to tell. And and uh, of course I've heard the, the, the legend of the snipes for a long time and of the ranch and and just just to be there. I mean it's such hallowed ground and and uh, for them to share the experience in that property and their passion for the sport, I mean, yeah, that's high cotton when you get a, a chance to go there. Well, indeed, we at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation are very fortunate that we, we are the largest beneficiary of those uh, fundraising efforts there at Park Cities. And I often refer to them as the wind under our research wings. What do you think about the banquet there at Park Cities? Oh my God. I mean, I've done, 
I've done the uh, the rubber chicken banquet circuit for a lot of my life, you know, working for Ducks Unlimited, et cetera. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, what a what an incredible event! And I was sitting with with Joe Crafton, who's just such a great guy and and one of the architects of the whole deal. And and uh, you've got Secretary uh, Tillerson at the table, and what a another terrific fellow and good good fun to get to know him and and just a, a room full of notables and uh, you and Brad included and and just such a such a great time and and what a celebration of the people and the culture and uh, to see to really see the legacy of of hunting and and quail hunting and quail conservation in Texas unfold kind of in one night and and to see that private sector desire and, and leadership to to really drive conservation not just in Texas but in America and, uh, and to me that's always been that's always been the magic of, of the American conservation story is just that it it wasn't driven by the federal government wasn't driven by a state government it was driven by sportsmen who gave a damn and, and put their asses on the line financially through their wealth work and wisdom and transformed the landscape because of it transformed and grew a culture because of it and uh, and you go to that event man you're you're seeing the pinnacle of that entire manifestation and it was a it was really a privilege to be there i really enjoyed it well indeed we thank the world of park city's quail and we're fortunate to be their largest beneficiary and we wish those guys the best of luck each and every march at their annual banquet and if you when you've been there you can truly say that it is conservation's biggest night and we thank all of their committee. They work year round to bring off such a grand event and to raise so much money. And we, and we thank Joe Crafton who resurrected the Quail Coalition and the business model therefore, and also has served on the board of directors for the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation since its inception back in 2007. And he currently serves as president of the foundation. Attaboy guys. Do you have some something to do with the Houston Safari Club? Seems like I saw some reference to that, maybe. You know, I've done some stuff with them, and and they're you know between Dallas Safari Club, Houston Safari Club, and Safari Club International. I've we you know we try and do as much as we can. You know, we we have a small foundation that helps out a little bit financially, but but really what we try and do is give voice to these NGOs and give them a platform and and really introduce them and and baptize them to the masses, if you will. And so we've done a lot of that over the years, whether it's Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. I served on that board for, gosh, I'm still on that board. I don't think you can ever get off that board, actually. But but I love those guys. And Jeff Crane does a great job out there. And we created a television series around the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust many years ago, ran for about 10 years. We got Tom Brokaw to host it, uh, Michael Keaton, Huey Lewis, Liam Neeson, you know, all sorts of fellows were, were part of of really and and really what they did was they went flats fishing which was to to showcase these important ecosystems on the coast where you know that that were really nurseries for bonefish tarpon and permit and and really kind of brought the whole BTT group into a a national status if you will and and helped them really grow that organization using these notables using television using the video content to help populate all the platforms and and just you know just amplifying their messaging out there. So we've we've tried to do that wherever we can, and 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 hopefully we've we've helped a little bit down the road, and and we continue to do that. You know this IMAX film that we're doing with Audubon and Ducks Unlimited and the Max McGraw Wildlife Foundation out of Chicago. I mean it's a it's a two year venture, and 
and really it's designed to to brand the prairie wetlands. You've heard of the, you know, most people have heard of the Amazon, the Serengeti, the Everglades, but unless you're a duck hunter, you probably haven't heard of the prairie potholes, the prairie wetlands, which is a 275,000 square mile ecosystem that produces almost 70% of the water birds in North America. So the idea was, let's create an IMAX film that's really immersive. When you step into that 80 by 60 foot theater, you know, the screen that size, you're immersed into that ecosystem in a way that no other format can do it. And then, and then just celebrate the importance of that ecosystem, take people there virtually, vicariously. And then, you know, as David Attenborough always says, look, people don't, they don't, they don't help what they don't care about. And the only way they're going to care about something is if they know about something. And uh, so that's the idea here. And, and to get the story of the prairie wetlands or the story of Bob White quail into school systems and, and just celebrate that and let people understand that, you know, these are, these are keystone species that are telling us a lot about the health of our planet and we ought to pay attention and, uh, and doing that in a way that's interesting, fun, compelling, and, and uh, is, is really the challenge, but it's also the fun, fun of the whole experience. Chris, I often refer to the Bob White as the canary of the prairie because the Bob White is an umbrella species, an indicator species. And if things aren't going well for Bob Whites, they're not going well for a suite of other critters. Or conversely, if they are going well for Bob Whites, then people are talking about horny toads. They're talking about dick sizzles. They're talking about red codcated woodpeckers for the east. Those kind of things that are riding on the coattails of the Bob Whites, yet they will never be hunted. Who's well, and your and, and your story, you know, as we were hunting down at in Texas, where you're talking about the, you know, the amount of time it takes a Bob White quail to fly from safety to safety and, and it's gotta be faster than the Cooper's Hawk can get to them. And you know, I, I just that that was just fantastic. I love that whole thing and and uh, and the way you communicate that is uh, is just just really important, you know. That's you. You've got to engage people in a way that they get it. They're they're intrigued and and uh, and are attracted to it. And, and anyway, well, about fifteen twenty years ago, I concocted what I call the softball habitat evaluation technique, or SHET. Be careful with your enunciation. There's a webisode on that on our website. You can check that out. But it's using slow pitch softball as a way to teach people about what quail habitat should look like. And I tell people that it's cowboy approved. I, at a quail appreciation day about 10 years ago after a presentation, a, a cowboy walked up to me and said, you know, until you showed us that softball technique, I never really understood what the boss wanted. Now I do. And the boss was absent at boss was obviously an absentee landowner and uh, now his uh, man on the ground knew what he was hoping to achieve so sometimes you just got to meet people where they're at you know i really uh, I, I really spent a lot of time in the industry dale just talking to manufacturers talking to others about this need to mainstream the importance of hunting and conservation as one and the same and and i've, I've i feel like i've harped on that to a lot of a lot of folks for a long time, but I think the good news is people are really getting it in in the industry, the manufacturers, the retailers, the the other conservation groups that that have you know have members that are predisposed to the lifestyle. But how do we take that that message out to the mainstream and 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 make it a make it something where conservation is delivered on scale? It's sustainable, and I really think we just have to continually 
tell our story. We have to break through to the mainstream, which is part of the reason I, you know, I, I love working on these IMAX films. I like writing in Forbes, you know, and doing interviews and in, in mainstream, you know, radio and television. I, I like doing that because I feel like I'm reaching people that aren't already converted. You know, we can, we can do something on outdoor TV. That's great. That's helpful. But at the end of the day, if we want to really transform, you know, the way conservation and hunting is perceived across the landscape, you know, we've got to reach out. We've got to find different avenues and, and ways to communicate to the folks that are, are not necessarily of our, of our fraternity and, uh, and, and bring them in and have an honest discussion about it and get them to hopefully open up and, 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 and what it is we stand for, if nothing else. Well, we appreciate your efforts there, the excellence that you bring to the table in both the written and the electronic media. And you asked a while ago, I made some comment about the uh, ballot-led initiatives in in Colorado. And yes, we're we're right on the cusp of those because we're getting a lot of Coloradans and a lot of Californians, as well as folks south of the border coming in Texas. I've got an article coming out next month in Texas Wildlife Magazine called Human Succession. And as a biologist, you'll know there's a reference to plant succession, the orderly, predictable mm -hmm. change of plant communities. Well, the future's here today. As a demographer would say, the future's here today. We just have to learn to see it. And it ain't looking good on many fronts. So we've got to be smart in the way that we approach that. And having a good image and a good spokesperson like yourself is, uh, is going to be the tip of the spear. So we appreciate all your efforts. Is there anything that I've left out that you want to say today? No, I mean, I just, I was just really impressed by what you guys are doing down there. The fact that, that, uh, all the, the, the private sector folks are coming together to lead the charge. And I just think it's such a, such an example for the national narrative. And, uh, and, and so it was fun to be down there, fun to see it in true Texas forum, you know, you get the government the hell out of the way and get on with business. And, uh, I thought it was terrific. Well, we look forward to having you back down there. You know, we're building a new headquarters, and hopefully when we get out of this La Nina draft period, we'll be back at 2015-16 types of levels. So you'll need to come back, bring that setter, or you'll want to get one at that point in time, and I look forward to seeing you down the road somewhere. I would love to come back anytime. And with that, Gary, we're going to sign off here with our guest, Chris Dorsey, today, sending it back to you in the studio, and look forward to visiting with you again next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Chris Dorsey, for all that you have done and continue to do in telling the story of wildlife conservation. If you would like more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and the efforts of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, go to the website, quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.